Amen. At the name of Jesus, demons tremble. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Chronicles and the 21st chapter. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I know you'll probably turn right to it because that's what you were in your devotions this morning, right? First Chronicles 21, and we're going to look at a story that is really a tragic story about King David. Um, when we think about David's big failures, what's the first thing that comes to mind? David and Bathsheba, right? And that was the source of uh, judgment in David's life. And it was uh, the results were death and devastation. Uh, God told him the sword would never depart from your house, and it didn't. Um, Uriah died as a result of that that sin, and um, I think it's four of his sons died. The baby, and uh, Absalom, Amnon, and um, the other one's name escapes me right now. But Adonijah. But um, when David sinned, and what we're going to look at today, 70,000 people died. 70,000 people died. And so we would do well, I think, to take heed uh, to this story and, and learn. And before we get into that, and I'm going to pray in just a minute, but, but I want you to understand that before this story takes place, David is in a real good place in the natural. He has conquered all of his enemies. He rules over all of Israel. And the, the previous chapter tells us that the giants are dead too. You know, Goliath had some brothers. And uh, at this point, David has wiped out the perennial enemy, the Philistines, and all the surrounding uh, nations. He has subdued them, and the giants are dead. And at that point, we would probably think, praise God, hallelujah, the storm has passed. But as you're going to see, the death of the giants and the subduing of the nations and a time of prosperity that the storm clouds would gather. So before we get into 1 Chronicles 21, I'm going to ask preacher Larry Allen if he'll ask God's blessing upon the preaching of the word and our hearing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being in your house today on this independence holiday. Lord, we ask that you go with us today through this service. Use all that we do and say for your glory. We ask in thy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Preacher Larry. What a blessing it is to be here today. And let me just say that I love each one of you. And I, you're special to me. And I'm grateful for this country that I live in, that I have the freedom to be able to preach the Word of God here. I thank for all the sacrifices that were made that made this possible. And I know it's, it's customary for us to refer to this holiday as the 4th of July, but it's Independence Day. 
So uh, maybe, just maybe, take some time tomorrow. Maybe read the Constitution, uh, the Mayflower Compact. And, 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 we're, and we're laughing, but I think there's a lot of folks that are completely ignorant of the Constitution. I mean, they don't know what this country was founded upon. This country was founded upon biblical principles, and we have departed from that. And, uh, and as I was preparing for the message today, uh, I thought early on this scripture came to my mind. And I thought, oh God, you want me to preach about the nation. You want to call America to repentance through this message. And uh, as the week went by, I realized that America is not God's chosen people, that we're not Israel, and that uh, Joe Biden is not King David. But the point being that judgment doesn't begin in the nation. Judgment begins at the house of God. And uh, as the week went on, I realized that the Lord wanted to deal with me as much as he wanted to deal with anybody. And I'm no king. I, I'm a pastor. Um, but nevertheless, every leader in this church, listen to me carefully. And I don't just mean deacons and elders, but I mean anybody with any kind of leadership role, whether you're a husband or a father, school teacher, whatever. You would do well to take heed to this message today. Because if a man after God's own heart is susceptible to this temptation, don't think that you aren't. And uh, it's, I don't want to belabor the point, but I've got a 10-point uh, a sermon, but don't get nervous, because it'll probably be shorter than some of my three-point sermons. Remember my 10-point sermon on John 16? It went by pretty quick, didn't it? They're all going to be alliterated. I don't do that a lot, because I think you can get cute with that, but <laughs> it just really flowed, and so I just kept on letting my pen write as the Holy Spirit was giving it to me. So my first point is the peril of prosperity. The peril of prosperity. Now, I alluded to this in my preamble, but David is in a time of prosperity. There's no trouble. There's, there's nothing going on. And I want to tell you that that's some of the most dangerous seasons of your life Amen. is when everything's going well. I've seen it as a pastor. When things are going uh, difficult, when there's difficulty, we depend on God, don't we? We pray. We come to church more. Uh, we, we, we depend on one another more when things are going hard. But in times of prosperity, we tend to put it in cruise control. And I've seen it over and over again. I've seen when people were sick, and, and they think that, uh, you know, they really need God to heal them, and they really get pressed in. But then when they get to feeling better, they, they cool off. And people go through financial hardships, and, uh, and a lot of times they'll get more active serving the Lord and going to church. But then God will bless them, and they'll come out of that, that season of... Um, of lack, and they'll forget about the Lord. I, I've seen it happen many times where somebody prayed and prayed that God would give them a good job, and God would give them a good job, and then they quit coming to church um, because stuff got a hold of them. It's not wrong for you to have stuff. It's wrong for stuff to have you. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. David is referred to in Scripture as the man after God's own heart, but he was vulnerable the peril of prosperity. Look at verse 1. Are you 21, 1 Chronicles? It says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now this is one of the few times that Satan is mentioned by name in Scripture. Uh, also in Job, I think in Zechariah, 
but Satan is the enemy of God's people. The devil is real, folks. He's not a mythical character. And he's not a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. Oh, that we would be so lucky. We would easily identify him, wouldn't we? But the Bible says he comes to us as an angel of light. Now, the, the, the companion text to this is found in 2 Samuel. Don't, don't turn there, but the scripture is up here on the, on the board. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? Not against David, but against the nation, right? There's a lot of layers to this thing, and I began to see them as the week went by. That God was angry with the nation. And he moved David to go against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, First Chronicles says, who, who was it that did this to David? Satan. But here it says it was God. And some folks get all uh, bamboozled and they say, oh gosh, there's a contradiction. No contradiction. God uses the devil at times. The devil is a created being. Satan is not God's rival. Amen. I, let me say that again. He's not God's rival, and he's not his equal. Amen. He, was a, he was an angel created to glorify God, and he sinned. He rebelled against God. God will use the devil. Uh, Paul said, lest he should be exalted above measure, there was given unto him by God a thorn in the flesh, which he goes on to say was a messenger of who? Satan, to buffet him. So that's, that's what's going on. Uh, the nation is ripe for judgment. And God is going to use, allow the devil to do this. And every commentary I read, and I, I would flip through the internet to look at sermons, everybody focuses on the sin of David. Everybody does. David's numbering the people. Uh, and, and there's all these sermons about don't trust in in yourself. Every commentary, the, uh, it starts out talking about David's failures. But what you're going to see here is that God's sovereign hand is at work. Okay? All right. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 2. David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. By the way, that's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, we would say something like see the shining sea uh, from Maine to California, from the southernmost point to the northernmost point of Israel. And bring the number to me that I may know it. Now, there's no reason for David to conduct this census. He's not getting ready to go into battle. The giants are dead. There's no reason for him to count the people. Okay, you understand that. There's no reason for him to do this. And so he's going to get into some hot water. All right. So let's look, at the, let's look at Joab in the next verse. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times as many more as they be. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of sin or trespass to Israel? Now, Joab is not normally portrayed as a spiritual guy. Now, he's a mighty warrior, but he's not normally viewed as a 
a real godly, uh, spiritually sensitive guy. So this should have been David's first clue that something's not right. When your unsaved friends begin to question your decisions, <laughs> that's a red flag. When people who don't normally follow God are saying, hey, what are you doing? That needs to be a red flag to you. This should have been a red flag to, to David. Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab because kings trump generals. Amen? Wherefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Now, we're not, we're not told this in 1 Chronicles, but in 2 Samuel it tells us that this whole endeavor took nine months. I think 20 days. So basically, almost 10 months, they're wasting their time. Sometimes God's discipline to us is just letting us do what we want to do. Because we ain't doing nothing but spinning our wheels. No war was ever won because of Israel's military might. It was always because of God. It was always. So Joab gave the sum of the people, um, of the number of the people, and they all of Israel, by the way, the Israel is the northern tribes. Now the King James says a thousand thousand, that's another way of saying a million. A million one hundred thousand that drew the sword. Judah was four hundred, three score and ten thousand men that drew the sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Let's go to the next slide. Now you might be asking yourself, what's wrong with the census? I mean, after all, uh, we do it, you know, every how many years, 10 years or something, 20 years? Supposedly it's to help the, the people. Um, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give to every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When you number him, notice it says that there be no plague among them. So they had to give, oh, let me read the next verse. This shall they give everyone that passes among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. So when they conducted the census, they were supposed to collect a half shekel. And that money was to go for the upkeeping of the temple. And that's what that was all about in the New Testament when they came to Jesus and they said, does your master pay taxes? It was a temple tax. Okay, so there was not, nothing inherently evil about conducting a census. I do find it interesting, interesting, though, that in this narrative there's no mention of them collecting the shekel. Okay. And what happens if they didn't collect the shekel, the half shekel? It's underlined up there. What would happen? A plague, right? Now I imagine for just a minute, for just a minute, Joab comes in there and says, David, you got over a million people in your army. For just a minute, I bet it felt good. But like most things, I, I won't ask for a show of hands here. Has anybody ever yielded to temptation? It's a rhetorical question, because I know the answer. Whenever you yield to temptation, what, what happens? Now, it feels good for a little while, right? 
And then after a while, it's like, man, why did I do that? The other night, uh, or the other day, Geno's in Wingate closed down. That's a sad time. And, and so we ate Geno's twice this week. Because Lori had craving for Geno's. And Thursday night, she brought home a calzone and, and a pepperoni roll and salad and something else. And, and we ate real late. And I, and, and I ate more than I thought I should. <laughs> and at the time, it felt real good. It just felt great. And then about 2 o'clock that morning, the next morning, <laughs> I woke up with some acid reflux that was just, you know, Make you stand up. Make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I thought, that wasn't worth it. That wasn't worth it. I'm sure for a moment, Dave was like, man, this is great. I got a million and a half people with a sword. I mean, these, these are just military people. But then it was like, oh, man. Verse 7. It says, God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. My second point, which I've already made, but just in case you're keeping track, that was a plan prompted by pride. I know it's pride for three reasons. Number one, David says, I've sinned greatly. Number two, Joab knew something was wrong. And number three, and most importantly, the one that moved David to do this in the first place was Satan. And what made Satan, Satan? Pride. That's what caused him to fall from heaven. David was tempted already with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes with Bathsheba. But now he's being tempted with the pride of life. David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now in the second Samuel account... It basically says, my conscience is killing me. God will not allow his saints. Spurgeon said this. It wasn't Henry Haney, okay? Spurgeon said this. God will not allow the saints to sin successfully. If you're saved and you're living a life of disobedience, you're going to be miserable. David was miserable. I beseech thee, he says, go, do away with the iniquity of thy servant. For I have done very foolishly. This is what makes David a man for God's own heart. It wasn't that he was perfect. But it's that he was willing to confess to God when he was confronted with his sin. You're not going to get any relief, Christian, until you confess your sin to God. You're not going to get any relief until your controversy with heaven is over. You're not. You're going to be miserable. Let's go to the next phrase. Next slide, please. Point number three. I love this one. I didn't read this one in anybody's commentary or anybody's book. My point is a prerogative of punishment. I thought that just rolls really nice off the tongue. This is an unprecedented kind of thing here. God is going to come to, to David, and he's going to offer him three choices of punishment. None of them are all that exciting. Um, 
Verse 9, the Lord spoke unto Gad, David's seer, that means prophet, saying, Go and tell David, thus saith the Lord, I offer you these three things. This, this is highly unusual, folks. God doesn't normally do this. I don't know of any other time in Scripture where he does. He says, I offer you three things. And he says, choose you one of them. Now look at the end of verse 10. That I may do it unto you. That, man, that would make you tremble, wouldn't it? God said, I'm going to do this to you. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, choose you, either three years famine, three months to be destroyed before your foes, who he had just conquered, by the way, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days the sword of the Lord. When's the first time we saw the sword of the Lord? Gideon, I, th I think we've seen it even before that. I've talked about it last week. Remember in the Garden of Eden? There was a flaming sword. Flaming sword. Even the pestilence in the land. And the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast. Now therefore advise yourself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Wow. Talk about an impossible choice here. Do I take three years, three months, or three days? Um, I've got this slide up here. We'll refer to it. By the way, these, uh, I'm not going to read them all. Leviticus 26, you can read those. These three punishments, by the way, is what God said what would happen if the nation was disobedient. All, all three of them. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28 also. That talks about what would happen if, if a nation disobeys the Lord. There's blessings and then there's cursings. And, that, and I want you to read it and I want you to put America in there. And We're not God's chosen people. But I want you to look and see what's going on with us and what happened with Israel and see if you notice any parallels there. And I think you'll be surprised. I think you'll be shocked. I think you'll be saddened. I think God's trying to get our attention, folks. I do. I think when those towers fell September the 11th, God was trying to get our attention. I remember that Sunday afterward, the church, churches were full everywhere. We've, went, we've gone through COVID. We're experiencing inflation out the roof. And regardless of your political affiliation, I want you to know, I believe all these things are related to God's chastisement on our life. Because we have departed from him. So David says to Gad, I'm in a great strait. Well, that's an understatement. Let me, not fall into, let me now fall into the hand of the Lord. Let's go to the next slide. Next point, point number four. This is a plea for mercy. For great, very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David understood this. He knew something about human nature. He knew that God was a whole lot more merciful than man is. Is that hard to read up there? Kind of. I can only get the font so, so big and get everything on the, the screen. Let's, let's just look at some of these verses here. Psalm 51. That's that great prayer that David prayed after Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy what? Gentle mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Habakkuk 3.2. He says, Lord, in wrath remember mercy. God was going to judge Israel, but he says, God, even in your punishment, please have mercy on us. I want to tell you this. No matter what you're going through, it could always be worse. God is merciful. Amen. Jonah 4. Now, this is kind of funny because Jonah's actually complaining to God here. It's not evident because I pulled it out of context. But Jonah's actually complaining to God, and he says, um, I know that you're a gracious God and merciful. Was Jonah happy about that? No, he was mad. That's why he didn't want to go to Jonah in the first place. It's because he knew God would forgive him if they repented. You don't want Jonah to be your pastor. Because he don't want you to repent. He wants you to get judged. Lamentations 3, 22. Can y'all read that? Let's read that together. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Praise God. Praise God. Now, Lamentations is not a real cheerful book, is it? The title's a dead giveaway. <laughs> but even in the midst of that, God's mercies are new every day. Believer, God's mercies are new every day. Yesterday's gone. I can't do anything about it. But there's enough mercy for you today to forgive you of anything that happened yesterday. Amen. Or last week or ten years ago. Some of us are carrying around junk that we need to let go of. Amen. I'm serious. God's forgiven you if you've repented. All right. Point number five is a plague of biblical proportions. A plague of biblical proportions. Now here's the irony. What was David's sin? What was he doing? He was numbering the people. What's going to happen? He's going to lose a bunch of people. So the Bible says, So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, verse 14, and there fell of Israel, how many? 70,000 men. Now, it's often preached that God's responsible for the death of 70,000 innocent people. But remember what the first verse we read? It says that God was angry with Israel. These are not innocent people. These are, and some say that these are the ones that followed Absalom in his rebellion. I don't know. That would be conjecture. So God sends the angel to destroy unto Jerusalem. And as he was destroying, I want you to notice this. This is an interesting phrase here. As he was destroying, the Lord beheld and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. Now there's an interesting phrase I want you to pay attention to here. And this, I've never seen this before. And I just thank God that he showed it to me. The angel of the Lord stood where? The threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Really interesting. You're going to see this threshing floor uh, become prominent here in just a, in, the, in the next few verses. Where was the angel of the Lord? Where did he stop? 
at the threshing floor. Y'all remember what the threshing floor is from our study from Ruth? It's this platform, and they would take the winnowing fork, and they would, you know, uh, throw up the, the wheat, and the wind would blow. And if it's done right, you'd have two piles. The one pile would be the grain, and the other pile would be the chaff, which you would burn. Okay. Do you remember in our studies where we encountered a threshing floor earlier? Gideon, story of Ruth, Boaz, that whole scene took place where? Threshing floor. This is the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. All right, next point is a prostrated king. A prostrated king. Notice in verse 16, David lifted up his eyes. He saw the angel of the Lord stand between the heaven and the earth, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David of the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Wow. Now this is the king falling on his face before God. I wonder what would happen if our leaders would publicly fall on their face before God. And say, we've sinned. And I know we think it's not possible, but Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar did. But what would happen, I wonder? You know, God said, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. I'll heal their land. But it's got to start with us. We can't wait for the White House to repent. We've got to repent. Oh my, verse 17. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these, what does it say? Sheep. Now, your government thinks that you're sheep too. But they think you're stupid. David is a shepherd. And when David talks about sheep, he's not referring to the people as a bunch of idiots. David is pleading on behalf of people that he loves. I would to God that our leaders were more like shepherds than lords. I would that our congressmen and our elected officials were more like shepherds than wolves feeding themselves. What if we began to have the best interests of the, of the people at heart? What if the pastor was actually a shepherd and looked after the sheep? You know, I can preach sermons all day long, but if I don't watch over you and love you and care for you, I'm not a very good shepherd. And God's really touched my heart about that this week, you know. As for these sheep, what have they done? Notice what he says, Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Do you see what David is praying? 
He said, God, kill me. That's what David's praying. Now, I want you to see something here. What we're seeing here is David as a type of the Messiah. David was a shepherd, but Jesus is the good shepherd. And what does it say in John chapter 10? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. So here we see David, and David is a picture of Messiah. Lord, let the judgment that belongs to them fall on me. Remember, God was angry with Israel. He wasn't angry with David. Woo! Are you seeing that? God was angry with Israel. He wasn't angry with David. And David said, let it fall on me, Lord. One day on Calvary's cross, Jesus said, let the reproaches of them that reproach thee fall on me. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I got excited about that. Y'all look like your wood's wet. Don't try to shoot off no fireworks with them wet hands of yours. They ain't going to go off. All right. Do I have another point to make here? Yeah, I got several more. We got papers all over the place. Prostrate, ready, king. Now we've got a plan prompted by God. A plan prompted by God. And, uh, and this is important. There's a difference between a good idea and a God idea. David thought he had a good idea, but it wasn't a God idea. Though sometimes we get good ideas in church. We've had a lot of good ideas, uh, but it's not always a God idea. And so we have to be careful to discern. But now we've got a, a plan prompted by God. It says, Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set an altar unto the Lord. Where? In the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad. You know, there's no more delayed obedience. Well, really, there's not been any with David since he's come to his senses. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel. Is that what your Bible says? So Ornan, the owner of the threshing floor, he sees the angel. And his four sons with him, what did they do? <laughs> How many times have we said, God, I wish you'd just show up here and show out. And if he did, you would dive under that pew. And I'd be right there in front of you. <laughs> now, Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. You think Ornan was shaking in his boots? I think so. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. You shall grant it to me for how much? I'd like an, uh, an independent state discount. Is that what David said? One of the first times I think that we read about somebody paying a full price for something was when Abraham bought the tomb for Sarah. 
That was the only piece of property that he owned, by the way, in the promised land was the cave of Machpelah in the field. But now, David said, I want to pay the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. Now, Ornon says unto David, take it to you and let my Lord King do what is good in his eyes. Lo, I give you the oxen also for the burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. Now, why do you think Ornon was feeling so generous? I think he's scared to death. <laughs> I think he's scared to death. And he's, he's like, David, whatever you need, take it. You know, there comes a point in time where stuff don't matter to you. <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, you'll run up against something that money can't get you out of. And in, in this instance, Ornan's like, you know what, David, whatever you need. Because he saw the angel. Now look at King David's response, verse 24, and this will preach. And King David said to Ornan, No, nay, but I will verily buy it for the what? Full price. Jesus paid it all, didn't he? Jesus didn't pay for some of our sins. He paid for all of them. I will not take that which is yours for the Lord, nor will I offer burnt offerings without cost. How many times have we offered something to God that didn't cost us a doggone thing? No sacrifice. We're never going to see the power of God in our lives until we are at the place of sacrifice. I believe it. I believe it's going to cost you. Now listen, salvation is by grace, through faith. There ain't nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing. Not one thing. The ticket to heaven is blood red. But if you want to walk with God that's got power, if you're going to walk in the power of the Spirit, it is going to cost you. Amen. You can't do some of the stuff that your buddies are doing. You can't read some of the stuff they're reading. You can't listen to some of the stuff they're listening to. You can't go some of the places they're going. wonder what would happen if we begin to live a life of sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that was the price of sacrifice. Ninth point, proof of acceptance. Proof of acceptance. I love this. Verse 25. So David gave to Ornan the, the place, for the place, 600 shekels of gold by weight. And David built there. There. Where's there? Threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called upon the Lord. That's public worship. And what did God do? He answered him by fire from heaven. How did David know his sacrifice was accepted? Fire from heaven. How did Abel know his sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected? Fire from heaven. Fire from heaven. I believe that in order for you and me to see fire from heaven, we're going to have to come to the place where we end our controversy with God 
and we lay ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, have your own way. Amen. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, this is Romans 12, 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable, acceptable service of worship. David experienced the fire of God. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his, what? His sword, the sword of the Lord. Most conservative Bible scholars believe that this angel of the Lord here is actually Jesus in the Old Testament. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, many times it's Jesus Christ. He put his sword again into the sheath. Praise God when that happens. Hallelujah. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him, and how did David see it? Fire from heaven, right? He answered him in the what? Where did he answer him? Verse 28. You see a repetition here? I mean, we go out of our way not to repeat ourselves, don't we? Or we try to, at least. Why do we keep hearing this? This is like beating the drum here. The threshing floor of Warren and the Jebusite. Then he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offering were at the season in the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go there where the tabernacle was to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of what? The sword. We keep seeing the sword of the angel of the Lord. Point number 10, and we'll go to our last slide here, is the providence of God. Now what we learn in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in where? Mount Moriah. Where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place where David had prepared, where? <laughs> Mount Moriah is only mentioned twice in the Bible. Once here and once in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 22, God says, take now, says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son. He's got Ishmael too. But Isaac's the son of promise. Take your only son whom you love. First mention of love in the Bible, by the way. And get you where? And do what? Offer him there. When the angel of the Lord, when the flaming sword was going through the land of Israel, the angel stopped and God said, it is enough. He stopped the angel. Where did he stop the angel from destroying? Where was it, folks? At the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Is it reasonable to believe that at this moment, God is reminded of that time when Abraham 
in that very same spot, offered up his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, which was a picture, by the way, of God's only son who would be offered on Calvary. And when God saw the blood of his son, he passed over. And when, he, when, when, when this was all depicted, when this was all portrayed before God, he stopped the plague and he had mercy on the people. So what began for David was a terrible mistake. Amen? Terrible mistake. Ended up being the site where Solomon would build the temple. All of that, all of that led to God getting the temple right where he wanted it. Do you see that? All of that. I read in my Bible that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I don't know what wrong... You may be in one of three places here. You may be in a time of prosperity, and if so, you're extremely vulnerable. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or you may be in phase two, where you're already, you've already yielded to this temptation, and you have a controversy with God. God will not allow the, sins to, 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 the saints to sin successfully. So you may be in this point where you're real frustrated because you refuse to repent. God's calling you to repent right now. Some of you need to come to Calvary. Some of you have never repented of your sins and trusted the Lord Jesus for salvation. And you need to do that. Don't wait another minute. But there may be someone here who really wants to experience the power of God. Really want to experience a dynamic walk with God like King David. And you want to see the fire from heaven. I want revival, folks. I do. I don't, I'm not just talking about a series of meetings where we get somebody to come in here and preach. That's great. But I'm talking about a real Holy Spirit birth revival where lives are changed, where burdens are removed, where people are actually healed of diseases. I believe God still does that. I believe we can see that. I believe that we can see a move of God where water baptisms are not the exception, they're the norm. Amen. But the only way it's going to happen is if we go to Mount Moriah at the place of sacrifice. And we say, God, here I am, all of me. We just stand. I'm not going to make a long, drawn-out appeal to you. I think I just did. If you, want to, if you want to do business with God this morning, this altar is open. Would you come?